Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. When I recorded my last podcast on Tuesday evening, we were getting ready for Hurricane Dorian, which was supposed to pass by the south coast of Puerto Rico on Wednesday. But, you know, when I woke up on Wednesday morning, the meteorologists had uh, the hurricane pretty much coming right over my house. It had changed course. It had moved north and it was supposed to come right through Puerto Rico rather than just go by it to the south. But then the hurricane kept moving north. And by the time it finished, it ended up missing Puerto Rico completely. We were here. The kids were home from school. Everybody was battened down, waiting for what at that time was maybe a strong tropical storm, maybe a Cat 1 hurricane. But we didn't even get a raindrop, not even a gust of wind, uh, as the hurricane just missed Puerto Rico to the north. I think it did go by the U.S. and British Virgin Islands. Didn't really do much damage there uh, because the storm hadn't intensified. But um, Puerto Rico's gain is looks like it's going to be Florida's loss because the storm did not go over Puerto Rico and initially was supposed to go over the Dominican Republic. And the mountains there, that's a much bigger island, and that would have really beaten up the storm. But because the storm really was uninterrupted and it's been over water the entire time, now it looks like it's going to be a Category 4 when it hits uh, somewhere along the uh, east coast of Florida, I think, I don't know if it's Sunday or Monday now, it's supposed to make landfall, but it looks like a pretty powerful storm is going to hit uh, south and central Florida. And maybe it will go up throughout the state of Florida, up into Georgia and beyond. I suppose the worst possible outcome would be if the storm somehow went over Florida and then went back into the Gulf of Mexico and then re-intensified and then made landfall for a second time someplace on the Gulf Coast. Hopefully, that outcome will not happen. But regardless uh, of the outcome, this is going to be, again, a costly storm. Uh, There is going to be a lot of damage. And you're going to hear, as is always the case, uh, economists are going to be saying, oh, well, you know, this is good for GDP, right? Because whenever there's a hurricane, people talk about, oh, look, we have to spend all this money repairing and rebuilding everything that got, got destroyed. But that is not uh, good for the economy. I mean, if you haven't heard the open window theory, uh, Henry Hazlitt does a very good job of uh, explaining that and refuting uh, the Keynesian idea that disasters are somehow good for the economy. Like just like uh, Paul Krugman, right, wanted to cook up a fake alien invasion because he believes that it would be good for the economy if we wasted our resources preparing for a space invasion because, you know, guys like Krugman believe that World War II is what got us out of the Great Depression, and it's not. 
We didn't get out of the Great Depression until World War II ended. Right? World War II, the money that we had to spend uh, fighting that war uh, hurt the economy. The economy uh, was weaker as far as the standard of living of typical Americans. Uh, times were much more difficult during the war than they were during the Great Depression. It's just that people didn't complain as much because we were fighting a war, but consumer goods were in scarce supply. Everything was rationed uh, because it was being diverted to fund the war effort. Uh, and so this is a, a common Keynesian fallacy that, uh, you know, that disasters are good for the economy. They're not. Uh, you have to look at the unforeseen uh, consequences, which means that any resources that are going to be devoted uh, to rebuilding whatever the hurricane destroys, those resources are now not available uh, to do something else. So we have to go without something else that we would have had in addition to the stuff that got destroyed. Now all we have to do is rebuild what we lost, and we're no better off, right? If a building is knocked down and then we have to replace it, we still have the, built, the same building that we had before. Now, you can argue, well, maybe we'll build it back better. Uh, but if that was the case, if it was really a benefit, the owner would have destroyed it himself and rebuilt something. The fact that that didn't happen meant that the, the building the way it was was already you know, a, a good use of, of resources, and it didn't make sense to demolish it just to build one that might be a little bit better. Uh, but you always have to think about what you can't see, all the, the things that we don't have uh, because we have to rebuild something that the hurricane destroys. And of course, yes, uh, because there's going to be people that are going to be employed and building things, but those people might have been employed doing other things if their labor was not needed uh, to repair damage that's done by the hurricane. But you know whether or not it ends up feeding into GDP numbers and making the GDP numbers look bigger than they otherwise would be, you know, GDP again on its own is not even the best measure of uh, of real economic growth because when most people are thinking about economic growth, they think about an improvement in their standard of living. Is my life better? Do I have a better life now? than I did before the economy grew, right? And if you actually look at GDP, it doesn't measure happiness. It doesn't measure quality of life. It doesn't measure leisure. Uh, it measures the, the work that you're doing, right, or money that you're spending. But if you're, if you're not spending money and you're not working, if you're just enjoying leisure, uh, then none of that gets factored into the GDP, even though most people put a very high price on leisure. It's one of the most valuable uh, commodities that, that humans covet. Everybody always you know, looks forward to the weekend because on the weekends, they don't have to work, right? They get more leisure. But obviously, the GDP goes down on the weekends. I guess if you, if you, if you shop on the weekends, then maybe in theory, that helps the GDP. But what really drives economic growth is not the fact that people go shopping and spend money. It is the efforts that are going into the production of money. It's, it's savings and investment that drive real economic growth, not the, the spending of money. And I'm, I'm going to get into that a little bit more when I get into the uh, the GDP numbers and the consumer spending numbers that we actually got this week. But I want to I want to basically start out this podcast talking a little bit about what happened in the markets, because even though there is a, a storm 
you know, that we dodged in Puerto Rico and that's headed for Florida. It was a pretty stormy month in the markets uh, for August because August has come to an end. Uh, this was the last trading day uh, for August. Monday, of course, is a holiday. The markets will not be trading. Monday is Labor Day. You know, let me actually digress a little bit again and talk a little bit about Labor Day and why we even celebrate Labor Day. I mean, Labor Day uh, became a federal holiday, I think, in 1894 uh, is when it was first uh, became a federal holiday. And, it, you know, it, it came around uh, during the progressive era in the United States when, you know, the populist movement was going on and all of a sudden, you know, we had women's suffrage and we had popular election of, of senators. And, you know, we also had the rise of the labor unions and it was the labor unions and the labor movement that really was the impetus for this national holiday to to celebrate and to glorify labor, of course, by by not working, which is kind of ironic. We celebrate Labor Day by by not working, not working even harder. Uh, but you know, I I never really liked the the holiday per se. Number one, I don't think we want to glorify the labor movement because it wasn't a positive force uh, for the American economy. In fact, if you look at the industries that were most heavily impacted by labor unions, those are the industries that were destroyed. Uh, those are the industries where we used to be, you know, major employers, uh, particularly in manufacturing, because that's really what the industry was in the United States. It was manufacturing. And the labor unions basically rendered American manufacturers uncompetitive. And it was a part of the driving force for the destruction of the labor unions was because the labor unions destroyed all the jobs of the workers that that unionized. That was the big problem. In fact, the the problem today now with labor unions is the biggest labor unions are public labor unions, right? These are government workers. And the reason that labor unions are flourishing in the public sector, whereas they, they're not in the private sector, is because they can't drive the governments out of business because governments are not subject to competition. And so the labor unions don't destroy the governments. The governments just keep getting bigger and bigger and keep fleecing the taxpayers. So when it comes to the taxpayer, they are a big loser in the labor movement. And in fact, even when the labor movement started and you go back, you know, uh, you know, President Roosevelt, who was very popular labor president, even Roosevelt was against public sector unions. I mean, he said that the public sector employees should not be allowed to unionize. I mean, clearly they shouldn't be allowed to strike, but they shouldn't even have unions. But that's where unions have been successful, because, as I said, they have driven out a lot of the private sector employers. They've destroyed all the jobs that were unionized in the private sector, but they flourish. In, in, in the public sector where they shouldn't even exist. And I don't like celebrating labor unions, right? I, in many cases, this is organized extortion. You have government uh, basically protecting these unions and allowing them to do things that would normally be illegal, uh, but they have the cover of law uh, to protect them. But it hasn't been a positive. You, know, you have a lot of people on the left that want to credit whatever advancements we've had 
uh, in society to the labor unions, right? Oh, if it wasn't for the labor unions, we'd still have child labor. If it wasn't for the labor unions, you'd be working, you know, six, seven days a week. You'd be working 12, 14 hours a day. You wouldn't have any overtime. You wouldn't have any weekends, right? As if all of the gains in productivity are somehow the result of labor unions. And that's BS, right? What caused the improvement in working conditions for workers was capitalism. It was uh, the private sector investing, saving, uh, and creating more efficient ways of producing things and providing workers with tools and equipment that made them more productive. And it was the, the, the advent of capitalism and the Industrial Revolution and the productivity that went along with it. That's what liberated workers. It was because uh, a man became so productive, children didn't have to work, right? People were able to take time off. People were able to have a 40-hour work week or weekends off, not because some labor union mandated it, but because workers were made more efficient and more productive because of capitalism. If anything, labor unions stood in the way of that progress. They made it more difficult for workers to experience the gains of productivity. In fact, if it wasn't for labor unions and all the other government regulations and programs that we have, my guess is that the average work week would be much shorter, that workers would spend fewer hours on the job and they would enjoy even more leisure than they do today. In fact, one of the reasons that women initially left the, the workforce is because of the increasing productivity of their husbands. Uh, men were able to make enough money not only to support their children, but to support uh, their wives. Uh, but as labor unions got more popular and, of course, government got bigger and more expensive, uh, then women had to go back into the workforce in large numbers, particularly in the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, to pick up the slack because their husbands could no longer afford to support them. But, you know, labor unions, I don't want to celebrate it was not a force for good. Uh, in the American economy. And of course, when we talk about celebrating Labor Day as if the only ones that work are the employees. I mean, people forget that the entrepreneurs, the small business owners, right? They're not considered laborers. They're not considered workers, right? They're the owners. They're the bosses. See, they're, they're the bad guys. But in most cases, the owners of small businesses, the employers, the entrepreneurs labor far more than any of their employees, right? Most people who own businesses put in more hours than any of their employees. In many cases, they're the first person to show up in the morning and they're the last person to leave at night. And when their employees are taking the weekend off, they're at home working. They're doing the accounting, they're uh, doing other things, they're constantly thinking about a business. In fact, even when you own a business, right, even when you turn off the lights and go home for the night, you're still thinking about it. Right? You're thinking about it all the time. It's almost like you, you never have a break when you're running a small business. When you're just collecting a paycheck, you know, if you're, if you're punching a clock, you know, when you punch out, you don't think about work until the following morning because you're just going to get your paycheck. You could just show up. But when you're actually running a small business and you're not guaranteed a paycheck, you only get paid if you pay everybody else first and there's something left over for you, you have a lot of stress. You're always on the job. You're always working. Yet we don't have a holiday to honor uh, the entrepreneur, right, the, the small business owner, right? We don't even consider them. Uh, and, and again, the reason is, Politicians always want to, you know, 
kowtow to workers, to employees, because they outnumber the entrepreneurs and the bosses. So if you're going to have a holiday that celebrates the entrepreneur, well, you're not going to get as many votes because there's not as many entrepreneurs as there are employees who work for those entrepreneurs. So if you want to get the votes, then the holiday that you support is Labor Day. So we have Labor Day, although most people today have no idea why it's called Labor Day. All they know is they have a bunch of sales, and, and so they go shopping on, on Labor Day. You know, I always associated Labor Day with the Jerry Lewis telephone. Uh, and, you know, of course, that was always it was always the um, the last day before my my summer vacation, which is why in many cases, Labor Day is now the official end of summer. And I always ended my summer with a Jerry Lewis telephone. Unfortunately, uh, Jerry, I think, passed away some years ago and they no longer do that telephone. In fact, now a lot of kids go back to school before Labor Day. Maybe some kids will have uh, their first day of school on Tuesday, uh, but for some reason, most kids now are already in school, and then they interrupt uh, school to have a three-day weekend. Of course, this three-day weekend is going to be interrupted uh, by uh, Hurricane Dorian down in Florida, and you know, I started talking about Labor Day because I was talking about the storms that we have and the, the financial storms that are also brewing. We had a very stormy uh, August, right? August now is officially in the history books. A lot of people probably want to forget the month of August unless you had some silver stocks or some gold stocks, in which case you had a very good August. It was a big month for the precious metal and even bigger for silver, which is a precious metal, but not quite as precious as gold. The stock markets were all down during the month of August. Uh, U.S. indexes all down. The biggest declines were in the small caps, Right, Russell 2000, again, uh, this is the index that is more sensitive to uh, the U.S. economy than the global economy. Of course, the big moves were in the bond market. We had plunging yields, uh, long bond, 30-year bond hitting new all-time record low, uh, below uh, 2% yield. In fact, we actually closed below 2%, 1.97% is the yield on the 30-year. The 10-year is 1.506 closing the week. We also had a lot of volatility in the currency markets. The yuan, the Chinese yuan in particular, had, I think, one of its worst months in maybe 20 years uh, against the U.S. dollar. Now, of course, the yuan doesn't really move that much. So a big move for the yuan is not necessarily that big a move for a lot of other currencies. Uh, but the dollar was up in general. Dollar index, I think, settled out at about 98.80. So the dollar had a relatively good month, particularly against emerging market currencies. Some of them, uh, the Argentine peso, I think, was the worst uh, performing currency, just getting obliterated uh, as a result of uh, an election that didn't quite go the way people had hoped. But a very volatile month uh, in the currency markets, metals markets breaking out. Uh, stock markets turning lower. And my feeling is that September is going to be even more volatile. I think we're going to have even bigger moves and even more surprises in the month of September. So people really need to uh, prepare. And historically, September has not been a friendly month to the stock market. I mean, a lot of people think about October as the worst months for stocks because we've had some very big crashes in October 1987, of course, the big crash in 1929 happened in October. But really, historically, the worst month of the year for the U.S. stock market has been September.
not October. So we'll see. This September is likely not to be an exception. There are a lot of bad things that could potentially could be happening in September. Now, before I forget, I want to remind everybody or inform everybody, if you don't know, about my schedule, my speaking schedule that's coming up for the month of October uh, and a little bit in November. So if people are interested in attending any of these events, they still have enough time uh, to sign up or arrange uh, transportation if you need to travel. So my first uh, event is uh, in Las Vegas, October 4th and 5th at Caesars Palace. And I am doing uh, the Las Vegas Trading Conference. It's the Nigerian brothers, John and Pete Nigerian. They're on Fast Money on CNBC. These are good guys. I know them pretty well. And they asked if I would be uh, willing to come to their conference in Las Vegas. And so I agreed. So if you want to join us, you can go to the website. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure what the what the fee is for the conference or certainly if you're in the Vegas area. Anyway, it will be easy to attend. Of course, even if you're not in the Vegas area, you know, if you needed a reason to go to Vegas, here's an excuse. So I'll be there October 4th and 5th. And then later that month. I will be doing the Dallas Money Show. I haven't been to the Dallas Money Show. In fact, I've never done the Dallas Money Show. I normally do the money shows in Orlando and Las Vegas, but I agree to do the Dallas Money Show. And so that money show is from October 13th through the 14th. Now, this one is free, but you do have to register online in advance. And then when you go to the event, you can pick up your badge. So I'll be doing... Uh, a, a workshop. I'm on a panel. You can check out the full schedule uh, on the website uh, of conferences. But look it out. It's check it out. It's a Dallas. I haven't been uh, done done an event in Dallas in a while, so it's a good opportunity if you live in the Dallas area to come and see me, or if you feel like flying in for the money show, I will be there again. It is October. 13th and 14th. But of course, my favorite conference uh, of the year, I think, is the New Orleans Investment Conference. It's going to be November 1st through the 4th. Normally, it's before Halloween in late October, but now it's just after Halloween. It's November 1st through November 4th. This one is not a free conference. You do have to buy a ticket. I do believe, though, you get some type of a discount if you mention Schiff as a promotional code when you go and sign up. But it's a great conference. There are a lot of fantastic speakers down there, and it's a great city. Hopefully, uh, this hurricane doesn't go into the Gulf and somehow make it to New Orleans again. Uh, you know, when the year that they had Katrina was the one year they had to cancel the New Orleans Investment Conference. Now, it's very unlikely that that's going to happen again this year, but if you want to wait till uh, later next week to get your plane tickets, you know, you could always do that. But it's a great conference, and so I look forward to uh, seeing as many of you there as possible. Again, that is the New Orleans Investment Conference, November 1st through the 4th. Now, one thing, too, I, I actually should have talked about this on my Tuesday podcast because the story actually came out on Tuesday or the op-ed, but I didn't even realize it. But former Federal Reserve official Bill Dudley wrote an op-ed in which he argued correctly, actually, on this point, that the Federal Reserve should not be enabling Trump and the trade wars. And this is something that I actually talked about on my podcast, you know, before I even knew about the op-ed. But basically, Bill Dudley's point is that by 
easing interest rates because of trade tensions. And by letting Trump know that one of the factors that is influencing the Fed and their interest rate policy is trade in the global economy, and Trump knows this, and Trump wants lower rates, and he knows that if he can increase the tensions and the uncertainty in the global economy by ratcheting up the tariffs, that he'll get the lower interest rates that he wants because the Fed is saying, well, we'll if we have problems from the tariffs, then we'll lower rates. And so what, what, what Dudley is saying is that the Fed should not be enabling bad policy, that if Donald Trump is pursuing a policy that is harmful to the economy, right? Uh, that the economy should have to endure the harm, and political and Donald Trump should have to suffer the political consequences. That if the public uh, is not happy with the damage being done to the economy by the trade war, that they can vote out Donald Trump. Right? And he said that the Fed should not be enabling uh, the government to pursue bad policies by kind of uh, providing a shock absorber by taking the sting off the bad policy, by cutting rates so that the pain is not is not felt. Now, you know, the main problem with, with Dudley saying this is that he's a hypocrite. I mean, what does he think the Fed has been doing, including what was the Fed doing when Dudley was a member? That's all the Fed has been doing, is trying to take the sting out of bad policy. I mean, number one is the monetization of debt. It is buying up of U.S. government bonds to enable larger deficits than the private sector could finance and also keeping interest rates artificially low so the government could keep accumulating more and more debt. Why does the Federal Reserve do this? It is enabling bad fiscal policy. The Fed has enabled deficit spending to continue because it has insulated the economy from the pain that should have immediately resulted, which are higher interest rates. If the government wants to run bigger deficits, it's going to crowd out private sector investment. It's going to force up interest rates, which means mortgage rates and other rates, and the consumers aren't going to like it, and maybe they're going to uh, vote out the incumbents. So what the Federal Reserve has been doing, and it's pretty much been standard operating procedure since Alan Greenspan, is they are enabling bad policy, fiscal policy, and now bad trade policy, but they're enabling it by keeping interest rates artificially low and not allowing rates to rise. Because if rates rose as a result of deficit spending, there would be some political pressure to get rid of deficits, to cut government spending, right, or maybe raise taxes or whatever, but to do something to bring down rates. Instead, the Federal Reserve uh, makes it easy for the politicians because they don't have to make any of the hard political choices because they're you know, keeping rates artificially low. Well, that's what they're doing for Trump. I mean, for Dudley to say that the Fed should not um, try to make things easier for Trump, well, that's what they did for Obama. I mean, the Fed only raised interest rates once during the eight years Obama was president, basically. I mean, the last, the second rate hike was he was on his way out the door. Uh, it was in December of his uh, final term, and Donald Trump was on his way in the door. Uh, but look at three rounds of quantitative easing. Look at how long the Fed left interest rates at zero when Obama was president. All of that was to enable the bad fiscal policies being pursued by the Obama administration. Of course, the introduction of Obamacare, there was a lot of uncertainty there. People were worried about that. And so the Fed kept interest rates low 
so that Obama, you know, would have better numbers so that Obama could be reelected. That's exactly what Dudley did. And so for Dudley now to criticize this Federal Reserve for potentially, uh, you know, taking political action to help Donald Trump, he's a complete hypocrite. In fact, he really showed his cards, though, in the article because he mentioned in his article that he believes that Donald Trump is bad for the economy, that if the Fed's mandate is to help uh, maintain, uh, you know, stable prices, uh, low unemployment, economic growth, if the Fed's, you know, mandate is those things, then the Fed should try to uh, make sure that Trump is not reelected because Trump is bad for the economy and somehow a democratic socialist would be good for the economy. Clearly, that would not be the case, but he was making the point that the Fed should deliberately try to hurt the economy in order to make sure that Trump is not reelected because the reelection of Trump in the long run would be much worse for the economy than a recession in the short run. Now, again, I think that the Federal Reserve should not be interjecting its political opinions by saying this is a politician we want to help be reelected and this is a politician who we want to help defeat. And so we're going to uh, conduct monetary policy uh, for this reason. I think the Fed should be consistent. The Fed should not be enabling bad policies from any administration. The Fed should simply be concerned about the purchasing power of the currency, they should be looking for price stability at a minimum, which is what the Fed was created to do. Uh, we, the inflation rates that we already have, as far as I'm concerned, are too high. Even the official rates that uh, the government reports through its you know, bogus CPI, but the real rate of inflation is even higher. The Fed should not be working in conjunction with the White House to make things easier, to make the economy appear better so that whoever's the incumbent can get reelected. That's been the cozy relationship. They basically tried to reelect any incumbent regardless of party. So it's not that uh, the Fed has been partisan. They have done bad things for Republicans when Bush was in, in charge. Uh, they did, did bad things when Obama was in charge. They did bad things when Clinton was in charge, right? The Fed has been helping uh, every president regardless of party by keeping interest rates too low and by printing too much money. So uh, Dudley is not in a position to criticize the Fed for what they're doing now. No, I'm in a position to criticize the Fed. And I'm criticizing the Fed now, not because they're being too tight, but because they're still being too loose. Interest rates are still too low. Now, I know they're low all over the world, but that's because other central bankers are making the same mistakes that we're making. And in fact, one of the reasons that other central banks have started to cut rates is because we started to cut rates. That's the crazy part about it is the minute we started to cut rates and even before we cut rates, when we started indicating that we weren't going to hike rates anymore, that's when these other countries really started to ease because they were afraid that their currencies were going to go up against the dollar. And so to preemptively weaken their currencies before they strengthened against the dollar, they started to cut rates. And all of this is because all these idiot central bankers think that they need inflation. And they were worried that if their currencies strengthened, that inflation would be lower than their targets. So in order to enable more inflation, they started cutting rates, even though their rates were already ridiculously low. That's why you have all these rates negative. Now, this whole thing is going to blow up, right? 
All these central banks are playing with fire, and this is going to blow in a big way. Again, they're like a bunch of little kids, and they've got a bunch of chemicals from a, a chemistry set, and they're throwing them all together, right? They're hoping that you know they're going to get lucky, but what they're going to end up doing is blowing everybody up. But this article, though, has really pissed off a lot of people. And I think, again, it's going to help Donald Trump in his efforts to blame the Fed for this coming recession, right? He's going to be able to blame the Fed because he's going to say, look, yes, these other Fed officials, uh, they, they, they think the same way. They're trying to undermine me. They're trying to undermine my presidency. They're deliberately tanking and sabotaging the economy because they don't want me to get reelected. And that, again, that's going to be a major uh, a part of, of Trump's uh, 2020 campaign. Whether or not the voters buy into it, we'll see. I mean, obviously his base is going to eat it up, but I doubt it will be enough uh, for him to win the swing states that he needs to win uh, to have a second term. Now, another thing, too, a news story that came out this week that I originally misinterpreted. But remember, on my podcast on Tuesday, I basically said that as a result of watching the press conference with Trump and Mnuchin, where he was repeatedly asked if he had that late night conversation with the Chinese, it was obvious to me that the president had lied, that he had completely made up that non-existent conversation, which should be big news, right? The, the president flat out lies and pretends he had a conversation that he did not have. Right. And the reason that I was so convinced it was a lie is because I watched the way they responded to the question, because he was asked by a reporter, did you have that call? And the response is, oh, we have lots of calls. We have calls all the time. Yeah, I know. That wasn't the question. The reporter asked again, did you have this specific call that you mentioned you had? And then Mnuchin interrupts. Look, the president's always having calls. We're always having discussions. So they keep changing the subject to talk about calls and discussions that they routinely have, yet they refuse to answer the point-blank question about that particular call and whether they had that call. Because their answer is, well, we have lots of calls. Okay, you have lots of calls, but did you have that call? Well, since they didn't say yes, then obviously that call never took place. It was a lie. But then yesterday there was an article that came out. When I first read it, it said that the president admitted that the conversation never took place. But I later found out that he didn't admit it. It was leaked by some unnamed White House staffer that there was no phone call, that the president made it up, right? Which is exactly what I thought happened, and that's what happened. But, you know, what's really amazing to me is that no one seems to care that the president just completely lied. Now, maybe they think, well, it was he lied for good reason because, you know, of the stock market. The stock market was going down, and all it took was one lie from Trump, and the stock market rallied. You know, and I guess investors are happy. But, you know, when you need a lie, when you build the stock market on a foundation of lies, it's not going to stand long, right? I mean, I mean, basically, that's all we got right now because the truth, the markets can't handle the truth. It's much easier for the markets to handle a lie. But as I said, you know, on my last podcast, if someone in the private sector, right, if they deliberately lied uh, about a stock or sent out misinformation in order to manipulate the market to personally profit from the movements that they created deliberately by lying, they could get prosecuted for stock manipulation. Well, the president manipulated the stock market for personal political gain. Now, maybe other people gain, too, if they had stocks, right? But still, this is manipulation. I mean, if it's illegal for people in the private sector to do it, it should be illegal for the government to do it. Of course, the government manipulates the stock market all the time. 
right? I mean, the Federal Reserve manipulates the stock market, right? That's why we had quantitative easing. The Federal Reserve specifically said they're doing quantitative easing to make asset prices like stocks and real estate go up. Why did the Fed want real estate prices and stock prices to go up? Because they wanted Americans who owned those assets to feel richer. And if they felt richer, they would go out and spend more money. So they manipulated the stock market, right, by printing money and lowering interest rates. And so that's stock market manipulation too. But at least when the Federal Reserve manipulated the stock market, they were honest about it. They, they told everybody in advance, hey, we're going to manipulate the stock market because we think it's going to help the economy. But it doesn't help the economy. It's just a bubble. Right. Thinking you're rich is not the same thing as being rich. Right. Like I tried to explain to Art Laffer on my 2006 debate when he was so excited about the fact that the stock market went up and we were so much wealthier because the stock market went up. I pointed out to Laffer and he couldn't accept this, that the stock market going up doesn't mean we're wealthier just because we're putting a higher price tag on the assets that we own on paper doesn't mean we're actually any richer. What makes us richer is if we have more productive capacity. If those stocks, if those companies have invested in more plant and equipment, and as a result of those investments, those businesses are more productive, and then we have actual wealth. But to simply have a higher price on the wealth that we have, that's all on paper. And as I explained to Laffer, all that paper wealth can vanish very easily. And that's the predicament that the Federal Reserve is in. They created a phony recovery based on asset appreciation. And now they have to keep these asset prices from imploding. Or then we have a reverse wealth effect, right, even though it's not really wealth. So now the Fed is in this box where they have to go back to zero. They have to go back to QE to keep that bubble from deflating. But to reinflate it just does more harm to the the structure of the economy and the underlying economy, and they're leading us to a currency crisis because you cannot create economic growth by fooling people into thinking they're richer, right? You don't want people spending money that they don't actually have. If you really want more consumer spending, then you need more capital investment. You need more productivity. You need to raise the real income of workers by raising their productivity through real investment and through real economic growth. The Fed is trying to put the cart before the horse. They want to have the consumption before the growth. But what a real economy wants is first you produce, right? First you save and underconsume, invest and produce. And if you do all that, then you get to consume more. Well, the Fed wants to cut corners. They want to cut out the middleman and just make us all consume more by diluting us into thinking that we're a lot wealthier than we really are. So in other words, the Federal Reserve really wanted us to make bad decisions. The Fed wanted us to spend money that we didn't have, right? And why do they want to do that? Because they wanted to make the economy appear better in the short run. But they didn't give a damn about how much damage they did to the economy in the long run. Well, the problem is we've arrived at the long run, right? They always say, well, yes, that's a problem in the long run. That's a problem in the long run. Well, you know, eventually you're in the long run. It's not always going to be the long run. At some point you're there, right? Right now, in fact, this is 2019. People were saying not to worry about the deficits in the 1980s, the 1990s. They said, oh, maybe it's a problem in the long run. Well, believe me, 2019 is the long run, right? I'm sure when people were talking about the long run in the 1980s and 1990s, they'd assume that 2019 was probably, you know, close enough to be in the long run. But they didn't give a damn about it back in the 1980s because it was so far away. They didn't care. They were all going to be out of office. Now, we got a lot of economic data that came out this week, most of it, not all of it, but most of it weaker than expected and pretty much uh, 
underlying uh, the points that I've been making that the economy is weakening. On Thursday morning, we got a lot of data, one being the revision to Q2 GDP, which was originally reported as up 2.1%. And that 2.1% was above estimates, right? People were looking for, I think, 1.6 or 1.7. I was looking for something smaller than that. I thought it would be even weaker. But uh, we ended up with 2.1, which was higher than estimates. And the main reason for that was surging consumer spending. Consumer spending was much bigger than they thought. In particular, RV spending was a you know, boom in RV spending. You know, even though the RV dealers are complaining about the biggest bust in the RV market they've ever experienced, well, apparently uh, the RV dealers didn't notice that the RVs were, were just flying out of the showroom or out of the, out of the lots, and maybe they didn't notice it. But we had all this consumer spending that offset weakness in business investment and weakness in exports. I mean, the business sector is weakening, right? What is powering GDP growth under Donald Trump, right? This seems very ironic, right? Not what people expected. But what's driving GDP this year is consumer spending and government spending. That's it. Business investment is falling. Exports are falling. All the things that Trump promised to improve are actually weakening. And GDP is being driven by spending. And, of course, where is the government getting that money? It's borrowing it. We have record uh, government deficits. Where are individuals getting their money? They're borrowing that, too. So you have all this debt finance consumption that is driving the GDP growth. But that is not economic growth. That's a bubble. That's all that is. And it's completely unsustainable. Now, we revised down that 2.1 number to 2.0. But the crazy part about it is the increase in consumer spending, which was originally reported at a very robust 4.3%, they actually increased that to 4.7%. So the consumer actually spent even more money. Yet the GDP number actually went down, which means business investment and exports were actually even weaker than was originally reported. So this is not good economic news. This is bad news. You know, one of the other statistics that came out yesterday was for pending home sales. And they were looking for a small drop in pending home sales for July of 0.3%. Instead, we had a big drop. We dropped 2.5% in July. Now think about this. Mortgage rates are collapsing. Yet, Pending home sales are also collapsing. So think about how weak the housing market actually is if even this huge drop in mortgage rates wasn't enough uh, to cause uh, more home sales. I mean, clearly, the, the home sales numbers would be even weaker if it wasn't for the drop in mortgage rates. That's just how weak everything is. Uh, but despite that, despite that help from uh, the Fed in bringing down mortgage rates because of their reversal of, of policy, Americans are still not buying homes. And the reason for that is they're broke, right? It's not a function of the mortgage rates. A, they don't have the down payments, but probably most Americans couldn't even afford to buy the average home if interest rates were zero, right? Because they can't afford to amortize the loan. I mean, obviously, if they got an interest-only mortgage and the interest was zero, I guess they could swing that. But if they had to amortize the mortgage and so they had to make a payment based on how high the prices are, they can't do it. So the only thing left that can possibly help the housing market is for home prices to fall. But they're, they're going to have to fall 
rather substantially. But that creates another problem because when real estate prices fall, that creates a big problem for the lenders, the banks, anybody who has loaned money against real estate. Because when real estate prices fall, there goes the collateral. And of course, the other problem when real estate prices fall is that homeowners who are underwater on their mortgages no longer have an incentive to make the payment. And of course, you also have the reverse wealth effect, right? When people see the home equity in their home evaporate, right? If that's their main asset and all of a sudden it's gone, right? And it's very easy if you have a mortgage, a small decline in real estate prices can wipe out your equity. Well, what's going to happen? Well, consumers are going to have to spend less money. And still, a lot of consumers are still tapping into their home equity. They're refinancing their mortgages. If the value of your um, house goes down, you can't refi anymore, right? Because you have to be able to have the loan, the refinance approved. You have to have your house appraised. And so once the housing market collapses, all the refis are over. Even if rates are still lower than the rate that you have, you can't take advantage of the lower rate if you don't have the collateral in your house to qualify for a new mortgage. So housing prices going down is going to be another big problem. And it's another reason that this coming recession is going to be so bad. And the fact that housing market is so weak is another indication that the recession is coming. Now, this morning, we also got information on personal income and spending for the month of July, and they were looking for a gain of 0.3 in personal income, and that would have followed the 0.4% gain in the month of June. And we actually revised that 0.4 up to 0.5, but the July number came out at just 0.1. So income grew by less than was, uh, was estimated. But on the spending side, right, where they were looking for an increase of 0.5 following last month's increase of 0.3, consumer spending actually rose by 0.6. So despite income growth being lower than expected, in fact, just 0.1% gain in incomes, we had a 0.6% gain in spending, meaning that the increase in spending was function uh, of debt. People either dug into their savings in order to finance their spending or they just use their credit cards or some other form of debt in order to spend more money. But again, this is what's driving uh, the GDP right now. It is all of this spending which is being financed by debt. So apparently the consumer may be getting a little more cautious, but he's still spending. But the question is, how much longer can overleveraged consumers keep on spending in the face of an imminent recession? And of course, once the recession really starts to kick in, uh, that's when spending is going to implode and then jobs with it uh, because a lot of employers, obviously, you know, they don't generally anticipate recession. They react to recession. And as the recession start, that's when the layoffs begin. And of course, when people are laid off and they have no income or simply are getting an unemployment uh, benefit, then, you know, their spending really goes down. And of course, a lot of people uh, that are working today don't qualify for unemployment benefits anymore because they're not technically employed. They're in the gig economy. And so what happens to them is their incomes just go down and they have no government offset. And one indication that consumers are getting a little bit concerned, even though they're still borrowing and spending, was the University of Michigan consumer sentiment number that came out today. The expectation was for a slight pickup in consumer sentiment. Last month uh, uh, in July, it was at 92.1. 
and they were looking for an improvement to 92.3. Instead, the index went all the way down to 89.8. Now, that's actually the biggest plunge in one month in consumer sentiment in six years, and it is the lowest that this indicator has been since Trump has been president. And, you know, if consumers were actually a little bit smarter, if they had a better understanding of exactly how bad things are going to be, that number would be much lower. Right. Consumers are still overconfident. Now, I have a feeling that by the time the election rolls around in 2020, they will have a a more realistic assessment of how bad things are and how bad things are going to get. But of course, they're still going to be overconfident because a lot of people might think, oh, well, we're going to get a new president uh, and, you know, we're going to have a socialist president. Oh, then they're going to solve all of our problems. So there may be some hope that a new president will somehow change the dynamic. But all those hopes are going to be dashed. Uh, because a lot of the bad things that I thought were going to happen while Obama was president, right? And I thought things were going to get a lot worse, right? When, you know, back in 2007, 2008, 2009, I thought it was going to hit the fan while Obama was in office. It's not, right? It's going to hit the fan uh, when the next Democrat is in office, right? Not even while Trump is in office. The real bad stuff is going to happen uh, when the next Democrat is in office. So I was I was one Democratic administration off in, in some of my forecasts for how bad things are going to get with inflation and the economy. But, you know, because of that delay, because we kicked the can down the road for as many years as we did, it's all going to be much worse. So all the bad things that I thought were going to happen on Obama's watch are going to happen even worse on the watch of whoever replaces Trump. Also, I want to point out that we did have a pretty decent drop in the price of Bitcoin following my last podcast. When I was doing my last podcast, Bitcoin was still above 10,000. I think it was around trading between 10,100 and 10,200 as I was recording. And I pointed out that even though Bitcoin had been touted as a safe haven, right? And the one day that, you know, when the, the Friday when the yuan got clobbered, you know, went through seven and the markets were going down, Bitcoin did move up a couple of percent, like 2%. And there was nonstop coverage on the networks, the financial networks rather, about how this proves Bitcoin is a new safe haven. It's digital gold. Look, it's going up. People are buying it. And I was saying at the time, nobody is buying Bitcoin as a safe haven. Maybe there's some people who are speculating that somebody else might buy it as a safe haven, but all these speculative bets are going to lose. And yesterday we had a sharp fall in the price of Bitcoin. It went all the way down to about 9,300. Uh, so we broke down very quickly. As I'm recording now, we're trading around 9,500, 9,600, still decisively below 10,000 and substantially below where we were the Thursday before the big Friday uh, you know, meltdown in stocks when people bought gold and started buying silver and bought the Swiss franc and bought the Japanese yen, right? The real safe havens have gone up since that day. Only Bitcoin has gone down. In fact, Bitcoin has actually gone down more since that day than any of the other major stock markets. So if anybody was worried about the stock market or worried about the Chinese yuan, and because they were worried about losing money in the stock market or in yuan or any other currency, if they got into Bitcoin instead, they lost far more money in Bitcoin than whatever they sold to buy Bitcoin. So in other words, it's not a hedge, right? If you lose more money in your hedge than the asset that you were hedging, it's not a hedge. 
It is a speculation. And of course, you know, whenever I point this stuff out and point out how badly Bitcoin is doing, I get all these, you know, trolls on on, on uh, Twitter. They all want to keep tweeting and reminding me about, hey, how great Bitcoin has done since, you know, 2010, 2011. Of course, yes. If you're going to start measuring it from the beginning of the bubble, that's true. It's done great since then. I'm not talking about how it's done since then. I'm talking about how it's doing now. How is it doing since it peaked out at 20000 in 2017? Look, even when Bitcoin is $1,000, right? And maybe it'll be back at $1,000 next year. I don't know. You know, maybe it'll take a couple of years to get back down to 1000 It's going there. It's going lower than that. But I'm sure that when Bitcoin's at 1000 you're going to have people saying, yeah, but look at how much it's up. If you'd have bought it when it was a dollar, it's still the best performing asset in the world. You can always say that. As the bubble deflates, you can always talk about the gains since the very beginning. But if Bitcoin goes down to 1000 it's down 95% from its peak. So I'm not talking about what happened as the bubble was inflating, right? That ship has sailed. I'm talking about what's happening now that the air is coming out of that bubble. And people still have a chance to make money if they got in early enough. As I've been saying since the beginning, the only people who are going to make money on Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency are the people who sell. Right. If you just buy and never sell, you're not going to make anything. There are some people that bought and already sold. Right. They've left the casino a winner. There are a lot of other people who bought who haven't sold. They're still in the casino. And if they don't sell, they're going to leave a loser, too. They're going to lose whatever they initially bought. And, of course, there are a lot of people that already bought in at higher prices and who have sold out and left the casino with a loss. But ultimately, it's one gigantic casino. And the house is going to take a rake. But apart from that, the money that people make is going to equal the money that people lose. Right. So anybody who pulled money out of crypto that money only came because some people put money into crypto and never got it back out. Now, there are some people, they're just going to ride it up and down, right? They're going to they're gonna watch uh, uh, all this paper wealth accumulate, and then it's going to just vanish to money heaven, right? So that, that, that's not a real gain or a loss. It's just on paper. You think you made money, and then you realize you didn't. But there are going to be some people that actually lose money that buy in and, and, and watch their money go away, and those are the gains, the people that got in early and who were smart enough to leave the party before it ended. Now, the final thing I do want to talk about on today's podcast, a lot of the brokers at Europe Pacific Capital have been telling me that they've been getting a lot of calls from clients just wanting to go all in on gold stocks. And some of them are saying it's based on, you know, what I've been saying on my podcast about how bullish I am on gold and silver. And there are people who are wanting to cash out. You know, one of the strategies that we have is a dividend payer strategy, and it focuses on uh, dividend paying stocks uh, outside the United States. And people are wanting to cash out their dividend paying stocks and buy gold stocks. And this is a mistake, right? I mean, if you have an allocation in your portfolio to dividend payer stocks, then you want to stay with that allocation. You have to realize that it's a different animal. And of course, you know, gold stocks were doing terrible a year ago. I mean, we had a lot of redemptions out of our gold fund right on the lows. I mean, I was talking to Adrian Day about it and, you know, he felt so bad. There were stocks that we had to sell that we, I mean, they're you know maybe even 50, 100% higher now than we sold them because we had no choice because there were people getting money out of the the gold fund at the lows. A lot of clients were giving up on gold stocks last year. I mean, I, I I was, you know, talking myself blue in the face trying to get people to stay in gold stocks. And now they've turned around. 
right? But a lot of people were giving up. Now there are people who want to give up, let's say, on these dividend-paying foreign stocks because they're not going up right now. Well, the reason they're not going up right now is because the dollar is still going up. The dollar is still strong. But when the dollar reverses, then you're going to see, I think, big gains in these non-dollar stocks. And as the dollar starts to fall, that's going to take a lot of pressure off of foreign economies. So their stocks are going to do better. The currencies are going to do better. And also, you know, gold and silver can be very volatile. I mean, just because I'm bullish and I think gold's going a lot higher and silver's going to go a lot higher and I think we're going to take out the highs doesn't mean it's going to be smooth sailing, right? It's, there can be a lot of bumps. There can be some violent corrections. So if you already have exposure to gold stocks, as most of my clients do, right, rallies is not a good time to increase your exposure, right? You want to wait for a dip to buy more. You never want to buy. You want to buy before the rallies, not after. Now, if you don't have any money in gold and gold stocks, well, you need to get in, right? I mean, you should have got in sooner. I've been talking about it for a long time. But if you've been, you know, dragging your feet or procrastinate, you got to buy in. But keep some dry powder. Because you want to have some ammunition to buy the next pullback. Look, we had a bit of a pullback in gold and silver yesterday. In fact, gold pulled back a little bit more today. Silver actually gained back some of what it lost. And I like the relative strength now of silver. I think this is a positive sign for the overall market that silver is is acting stronger than gold and starting to you know recover a lot of what it lost. And it's still got a long way to go uh, in the recovery. Uh, but wait for a pullback. In fact, ironically, what actually may happen, and you know, I'm not sure, but I'm speculating, but maybe when the dollar finally starts to fall, right, we might have a pullback in gold when the dollar starts to fall, right? Because maybe people all over the world are buying gold because they're worried about their own local currencies. And if their own currencies start to appreciate against the dollar, maybe they won't have as much of a reason to put in to buy gold and there may be a correction in gold. And that correction will be a great buying opportunity because the best thing that can happen to gold is a weak dollar. I mean, gold is rising now even when the dollar is relatively strong against other currencies. That's normally a difficult environment for gold. The fact that it's thriving in a difficult environment shows you just how much underlying strength is in the market. But once the dollar starts to fall, and now gold has a tailwind from a falling dollar and not a headwind from a rising dollar, then gold's going to rise even faster. But you don't want to go all in on gold. I mean, people have that dividend-paying strategy because they wanted part of their portfolio that's not in gold. They didn't want to put all their eggs in one basket. They wanted to have other sectors. And believe me, if people put all their eggs in one basket, chances are they gave up that basket a long time ago. If the only thing you own were gold stocks over the last 10 years, I mean, what's the chance? What's the odds that you're still in the game, right? But if you had a more diversified portfolio like we recommended and you had exposure to gold stocks, but you didn't go all in on gold stocks, then you, you were able to ride it out. And now you were able to add to your portfolio before this rally, as I was pounding the table on people to do. And people will be positioned to add on the next pullback. But this is not the time to start going all in. You never want to go all in anyway. Uh, but I do think that our non-gold part of our portfolio, and most of the money we manage is not in gold stocks, right? Because I always recommend gold stocks are speculative. Even though I think it's a winning speculation, you need to keep everything in, in, in perspective because I could be wrong, right? And, you know, I've been wrong before. I've certainly been early about things. And, and so you don't want to 
overloaded. I mean, I'm personally overweighted. I'm, I'm willing to deal with the consequences if I'm wrong. Uh, but for my clients, I, you know, I want to have more of a buffer in case things aren't as bad as I think. I don't want to just have, make an all or nothing bet on gold. But when the dollar turns, all of the uh, non-gold stocks that haven't really been doing much uh, are going to suddenly you know, do really, really well. And the fact that gold is this strong is a good indicator that the current dollar rally is not going to last. Because if we really had a strong dollar, gold would be falling. People would be buying the dollar instead of gold. The fact that people are choosing gold over the dollar, which they clearly are because the dollar price of gold is rising, that shows that people are, in fact, worried about the dollar. They are buying gold instead of the dollar. And the dollar competes with gold, right? They're both reserve assets. And as the dollar loses value relative to gold, that calls into question the long-term uh, store of value of the dollar, and that causes central banks to weigh their allocations and think, you know what, the dollar, the yields are very low on dollars, right? And the dollar is losing value. We should hold more of our reserves in gold and less of our reserves in dollars. And so as gold becomes more attractive an option and as more people prefer gold, that puts pressure on the dollar. The dollar is the biggest loser when gold is strong because the dollar is the biggest reserve currency. So if gold is going to eat into the share of reserves that foreign central banks have, the dollar has more to lose because the dollar has a bigger share to give up. So the dollar is the threat. We have a monetary system now based on the dollar. And if we move away from the dollar towards gold, then that particularly hurts the dollar. So I think the dollar is going to fall. Gold strength right now indicates that the dollar is actually weak. You just can't see the weakness if you're looking at it through other currencies. In fact, Donald Trump keeps tweeting that the U.S. dollar is the strongest in history, which, of course, he's not even close to being the strongest in history. Uh, he's generally wrong when he talks about history. But it has been strengthening when you measure it against other currencies that are also weakening. The problem is all currencies are weakening right now. It's just that the dollar is weakening more slowly than other currencies for now. But ultimately, the dollar is going to weaken the most. As I said, it has the most to lose from the rise of gold. But this whole idea, this whole theory that America is the cleanest shirt in the hamper, that we're the prettiest horse at the glue factory, all this is wrong. Right? The perception of the U.S. economy is wrong, and as that perception changes, so too will the trajectory of the dollar. Anyway, enjoy the holiday weekend. Uh, you, those of you in Florida, I hope for the best, uh, and hopefully not too much damage from, uh, from the hurricane. And we will be back uh, later next week after the holiday covering the hurricanes, the man-made, the man-made natural disasters uh, that are far greater and far more destructive than the ones that Mother Nature throws at us.